Hello, and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. I'm Iz. And I'm Isabel. And today with us we have Sarah from the Anthropology Department. I'll let you introduce yourself. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks um, for coming. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. So, go ahead, sorry. So to start, um, Sarah, do you want to just give us a little bit of background about yourself, about what you do um, here at MAC? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I'm a PhD candidate. I'm just like in the midst of wrapping up, hopefully, this year. Um, I work with Six Nations of the Grand River, and we co-create uh, tools and and skill sets to kind of tackle the First Nations water crisis uh, experience at Six Nations, and I do the health and water-related stuff. So looking at how water quality impacts health uh, holistically. Wow, yeah. that's very <laughs> <laughs> um, And did you do your master's as well at MAC or no okay um I did my master's at University of Manitoba um and that was in bioarchaeology so I was looking at like mobility using staple isotopes uh in ancient Denmark around the time of like the Black Death and then decided that that wasn't for me and got into <laughs> community health work yeah cool yeah it's a big transition from bioanth to kind of more cultural is that like something you planned on or is that kind of a no. Uh, <laughs> I had um, I had a prof out at U of M. Um, I was like the only student in her class, uh, which was, it was really fun, but also kind of awkward sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so she was looking at like food and nutrition uh, in her class. And because it was just like her and I working on it, I realized that was just like so much more natural and organic for me to like develop research questions around that and, and figure out what I wanted to do. Whereas with BioArc, I love it and it's so fun, but like I kind of had to be told like what to look for like what kind of questions to ask um and that to me wasn't sustainable for a long time so yeah so it just kind of came about that way yeah I think it's really interesting how you found your niche like it's really cool how like I mean anthropology is such a broad field that you're able to find what really interested you in the field so that's really cool I think so we wanted to ask you a few questions kind of about both sides the cultural side and bio arc um and kind of how like food and nutrition can shape culture and biology um to start um for more of a kind of cultural side do we want to talk about food security a little bit sure yeah yeah um so can you give us a definition oh gosh (laughs) (laughs) from your research from your yeah I guess you just kind of like narrow it towards like food security in indigenous Canada maybe even like sure yeah um so I mean this is like you know a very fluid definition and I think it depends on who you ask like how they define it but normally you're looking at um, how accessible available and affordable food is Um, I think it's the three A's I always forget but that's kind of of like the main uh, thing that you look at for food security Um, and so it's really asking questions around like um, you know, even if you have an income, do you have the time and the ability to to make food for yourself, to go grocery shopping, that kind of stuff? Uh, for Indigenous Canada, it's also a little bit different because there's the access um, can be, you know, geological barriers or geographical barriers of um, if they're living in remote communities, they're not necessarily going to get fresh produce shipped up all year round. Sometimes, especially if you're out in um, the Arctic, um, it depends on like shipments that come in every few months. Um, and even in you know urban First Nations communities, there's still that issue of access. They might have access to a lot of processed foods, um, but they might not ne- not necessarily have access to the land that they can grow foods on, or hunt, or forage, or things like that as well. 
So would you define food security and food sovereignty as two different concepts or kind of the same? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I will also start off by being by saying very clearly that I'm also not Indigenous. So I work right. with Indigenous folks, um, but I'm white and I'm a settler. So that kind of, you know, my definitions also are shaped by that um, and not the lived experience. Um, but food sovereignty is more of like, from my understanding and from from the folks that I've worked with, it's more of like a resistance and resiliency movement. Um, And so it's coming back into um, practicing different food ways, like ways of gathering, hunting, foraging, um, creating, preparing, you know, everything from from gathering it from the land to like consuming it around the family table um, and doing so in ways that are like culturally appropriate for that particular nation. Uh, And that differs across nations as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's really cool. Um, And it kind of goes um, into something that I think we want to talk about next, which is kind of different meanings of food, um, which I know we've been talking about in class. Um, So Isabel and myself are in in a class with Sarah this semester, um, the bio arc (laughs) of food and nutrition. Um, But in talking about the meaning of food, um, so you said food sovereignty is an act of resistance. Um, I think that's really interesting just because um, I took another class um, in Indigenous studies, and we talked about um, hunting and seal hunting, um, and a lot of um, Inuit communities who um, don't attend school. A lot of the students don't attend school, um, which in itself, again, like an act of um, you know resilience and resistance. Um, but they actually don't attend school to hunt seal, um, which is also another act because um, the government has put you know. Um, like barriers against mm-hmm. hunting. Um, and so one thing for that, so I know we've been talking about like how food has meaning. I guess, can you speak on that at all? Yeah, for sure. I, I love talking about that because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think about it a lot in day-to-day life. Um, I guess for me also, like I research food, but I've also worked a lot in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Um, so, and my partner does as well. So I kind of have that I guess no matter what I do in life, food's always part of it. Um, But yeah, food is like, you know, food is kind of a tool to look at a lot of other sorts of behaviors and patterns and attitudes. Um, It's also something where you can really dissect power dynamics through food. Um, I was reading this article a couple days ago where they were talking about um, the British food banks. And there was this opinion piece that came out in The Guardian about how a lot of food banks um, kind of dictate what foods are there and so a lot of it is supposed to be what is it non-perishable I was yeah. Mm-hmm. To do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of like the foods are dictated around being non-perishable but the turnover rates in in UK food banks are so fast that you could actually you know donate bananas or donate things like that that have a little bit of a faster turnover and they would go quickly mm-hmm. um, so kind of negotiating like what foods are seen as appropriate as as the bare minimum um, is kind of dictated by, you know, different power authorities and stuff like that. So that's just one example where food is used as this kind of um, bigger conversation around like power structures and and hierarchies and things. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. Yeah. food banks here, I feel are the same, right? Probably. Like, I don't have enough insight here. Um, I volunteered at a food bank and it's all, yeah, it was all non-perishable. Yeah. Items. Yeah, like even growing up, like going to elementary school and high school, it's always bringing a non-perishable canned item. Mm, So, yeah. But if people are using food banks really frequently, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the demand is definitely there, especially in places like Hamilton where poverty is so 
um, extreme. So Absolutely. But then it come, becomes that element of like luxury items or luxury food items. And so like, you know, do people that are struggling to subsist deserve these luxury items? And who's like who's setting that question mm-hmm. and who's setting that barrier is really interesting to think about um, because I'm sure everyone wants to have like really delicious foods. Yeah. They don't necessarily want to just have like the crackers that are left at the food bank. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It seems so yeah. backwards that like fresh food, like even the farmer's markets in the summer around Hamilton, fresh food is so expensive. Mm-hmm. So all the people like you have to have the money to get the good food and then you're just donating canned peas or something to a food bank and if people can't afford it. That's what they're getting, mm-hmm. which is really tragic. Yeah. Not to change course at all, but um, going off like availability of food and um, stuff like that. I just, a question just about your opinion um what do you think about like, fad diets and the keto diet different um kind of food trends that are definitely like pushed but not accessible to all and yeah what's your take on that uh okay so <laughs> it's interesting that you ask that because that's something that um you know in talking about food a lot I've always been really Um, kind of gentle about what my role is and like how much I say especially because I interview people and I don't want to like put my own feelings on that interview or whatever Um, but recently I've kind of like developed a stronger voice around that Um, and I think it's because of conversations around body image uh, that I've had with with people for work but also just personally Um, I find fad diets I mean they're kind of an indication of like what values we're holding around our bodies, particularly in Canada and the U.S. I think a lot of it speaks to our concerns around, like, having to restrict our bodies. Um, and that is, like, across across genders, across socioeconomic status. There's, like, this constant feeling like we're not necessarily enough because of the models that we're being sold. Um, so things like the keto diet, I am not a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, it's because I see it being used... Um, in 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 harmful ways because a lot of people just see it as this like solution to to take up less space in their body um, and you know it keto comes from the word ketosis which is um, essentially putting your body into a, a state of shock uh, after like de- depriving it of certain foods and like having to rely on proteins um, yeah so I don't know when you think about it that way it's like well why are we you know pitching all these fad diets that can ultimately harm us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think that some of the ways that these um, fad diets are marketed are also really misleading. Like the paleo diet, it's like, oh, eat exactly how people, (laughs) like however long ago ate. But like the domesticated foods we have today with processing and everything like that, um, that wouldn't have existed in the times that people say that these diets are like reminiscent of so I find that really interesting as well how they can be really misleading in that sense yeah yeah absolutely I think they're also advertised as healthy which Mm -hmm. is again misleading (laughs) like if you look at um like a big one right now that actually I know a lot of people doing is the fasting one oh Um, intermittent fasting yeah intermittent fasting so yeah I've just been around so many people and they're like, oh, I'm starving. And I'm like, oh, are you going to go eat something? And they're like, oh, I have to wait till like 1 p.m. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, so yeah. Like, I would be so hungry. I love breakfast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I actually have a funny story about that one. Um, there was a, a dude that I like lived with in first year, like in a residence, um, who actually ended up going on to be like a huge face in the intermittent fasting scene. Oh. Um, <laughs> Random. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he like he dropped out of school. He doesn't actually have like any education. Um, and I won't oh, no. like necessarily name him right now. <laughs> but I will just say that like like, you know, he's this person who people seek out online because they see his body and they see what he's representing um, and they see it as being ideal. But this is someone who doesn't actually have any background in diet or nutrition or like how to do this in a healthy way. Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, I've always had uh, kind of an ongoing open discussion around like body image issues personally and, and through a lot of um, other work outlets. Uh, so I see it as a form of disordered eating that's kind of been culturally validated. And that's scary to me. That's really scary. Yeah, because I feel like uh, us in Western societies, the definition of health isn't like actually determined by the nutrition. It's like your body and how it okay. looks, yeah. which is so disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> There's um, this kind of theory called healthism or like this foundation for a lot of this, which is called healthism. And it speaks to how Western values are like really deeply rooted in this almost kind of Christian separation of body and mind. Um, and so that has kind of, you know, we don't necessarily always have the Christian element within these conversations and dialogues. But it's that idea of like being pure and like your mind being better than your body um, that fuels all these different messages around food, which is really messed up. If you like take that moment to think about it and you're like, well, no, like I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to eat food. <laughs> ready yeah. to eat food. And it's interesting, too, when you put it um, kind of side by side with conversations, like a conversation about food security, because then, you know, it's. It, it's messed up if you think about it because you're you're having conversations about um, people who just don't have access or don't have um, like the financial ability to eat mm-hmm. next to people who are starving themselves, yeah, choosing not to eat intentionally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is really interesting. I think about that when I go to like all you can eat sushi. You know, <laughs> you like eat and eat meat until you feel sick, and like we love it. But there's people out yeah. there who like can barely like afford food and this is what we're doing in western society and there's also that kind of undercurrent too there's uh susan greenhall is like this really awesome anthropologist who looks at like um she has a book called fat talk nation and so she looks at these like discourses around around bodies and weight stigma um and so a lot of folks especially like newcomers to the states and to canada and to and to you know um communities where there are a lot of people of color um fitting in is kind of fitting into like whatever body and food ideals we're we're putting on as like a mainstream society and so you have a lot of folks who come from marginalized backgrounds or don't have resources and they have all these issues with body stigma and don't necessarily you know they're food insecure quite often Mm -hmm. but then they're also battling the same messages that people who have access to food but choose to like intermittent fast or whatever yeah it's messy (laughs) yeah and it and it's a perfect example of like the different like how complex food is and how meaningful food is um and not to change course again but i want to hear more about um six nations and the water crisis going sure there, if you want to speak to that yeah uh so the project that i'm working on um is called onekonos um well Part of it is that, and then part of it is co-creation of Indigenous water quality tools. Uh, and it's run by Dr. Don Martin-Hill, who's um, at McMaster. She's uh, a 
professor of anthropology and of indigenous studies, super brilliant woman. Um, and so she put together this like giant team of anthropologists and biologists and engineers, uh, human rights lawyers, uh, community elders, community youth, just pretty much like every single pocket that you could possibly pull from to look at uh, the water crisis at Six Nations. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, um, I mean, they source their water from the Grand River. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a water treatment plant at Six Nations, but it's actually only hooked up to 9% of the uh, community homes um, out of 13,000 individuals that live there. Um, so it's not a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, there are also a lot of like industrial um, places or, or industries around the Grand River that are using up um, the river and the aquifer. Um, and so that's kind of pulled a lot of water away from the wells and cisterns that community members are using. Um, and so that has a lot of repercussions on, you know, not just water access and water security, but also like how they grow foods, if they grow foods, what water they're drinking, you know, what, how they, how they make their coffee in the morning, um, whether or not they brush their teeth, the baths that they give their children. Um, yeah. So a lot of holistic health issues around that as well. So what's your role specifically in that team? Uh, so my role is um, I've been working with Six Nations Health Services and a little bit with the birthing center out there as well uh, to co-create health surveys. Um, so basically what we do, uh, I guess... There, there have been a lot of different health surveys that have been rolled out across Canada to look at Indigenous health, um, but quite often they don't do it in a way that is respectful of like what the community wishes in terms of how how people are sampled. Um, so they want to do like random sampling, but that doesn't necessarily work in a small population. It's whoever's interested in, in speaking out. Um, and so health services wanted to develop a health survey that was um, eventually going to be an autonomous survey for them to use at any point. Um, so I developed the pilot one with them and we're in the midst of doing the like big one that they'll hopefully be able to use for years to come um, with the intention of looking at health in a way that's much more uh, Haudenosaunee or Six Nations specific. Um, and then also that looks at how water plays a huge, huge role in health because that's been really downplayed in like the federal surveys that have been rolled out. Yeah, it's <laughs> really interesting. Uh, and sorry, what did you say the population was? Um, uh, it's in, roughly thirteen thousand. Yeah, wow. give or take. But yeah, <laughs> only nine percent. Only nine percent are hooked up to the water line. Um, and so far, with what I've been finding of that nine percent, um, I don't. I mean, I only have about sixty-five surveys in so far. But um, of the folks that are on the main line, which were about five households, none of them actually use the water treatment water oh, um they like use their own source yeah so they oh, okay. pretty much everyone pays for water um to drink to use on a regular basis and that's just you know we think like i i think we a lot of us just take it for granted every day that we mm -hmm. can like turn our tap on put water in a kettle boil it for coffee and like have no issue um but every single moment water is thought about in a very different way out there yeah mm -hmm. and i've seen something about that where um trudeau is obviously trying to get rid of single-use plastic and i saw mm -hmm. that it might be an issue for indigenous communities because that's the way they access clean drinking water yeah that's so kind of an interesting perspective that isn't considered in the federal government ever so yes yeah that was one thing i think a lot of the federal government um solutions to the water crisis are like short-term 
solutions to boiling water advisories, um, but they're not actually thinking about like how water governance plays a huge role in health um, and how traditional water sourcing is probably going to be the best way. Um, and that means, you know, giving up land, giving up water um, and, and truly reconciling. But I don't think the government is ready for that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, a bigger issue, definitely at hand. Yes. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Work that you're doing. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Thanks. Um, and I think it plays in as well to, like, food security. Just had me thinking. Yeah. <laughs> that is water as well. Absolutely, yeah. You know. That was something, um, because I'm, I, like, I don't want to use the word foodie, but because I do enjoy working around food, um, that was something that I had kind of been, like, thinking about, you know, I knew that water security and water quality was what they were interested in. Um, and I didn't want to like infuse my own research agendas on that. Um, but it does come up quite often. You know, if we don't trust the water that is running through our creeks and our streams, then how can we water our gardens? And, you know, if we're watering our gardens with this water, then we're eating the food that is grown with this dirty water mm -hmm. and, you know, becoming that. And that's like, yeah. I don't know. It's a very poignant way of kind of looking at the full circle of how water is related to, to food. food. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like to kind of like change perspectives a little bit, we can kind of pull it into, I don't know, archaeology at all and like uh, food in the past even. So obviously food has been part of human experience through the entire history of um, people. So I don't know if you want to like touch on that. I know there was a reading that we did this week about like bread specifically and how that's like <laughs> has always been a vital part of the diet and stuff. So I don't know if you like have any yeah. comments about anything. I mean, I about... haven't. I have to do the readings today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just called you out. <laughs> no, even in just a general sense, we yeah. did just. Um, you know, for everyone listening, just wanted to touch a little bit on kind of like the bioarch perspective when looking at food. Um, if you want to yeah. touch on that in just like a very general just sense. like the importance of like how food is like um, played a role in different cultures. And how past. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess the easiest kind of example to give is if you look at it skeletally, like you literally are what you eat. And that comes down to your bones, too. If you eat particular foods all your life, you can see that in your bones, um, whether it be marine foods or plants or meats or, or yeah. Um, and so, you know, that plays a huge role in health outcomes as well, which again, you can see in your bones. Um, but yeah, looking at it bioarchaeologically, we have like these, you can kind of trace back like when certain foods were introduced, looking at archaeological sites and tools. Um, and I know if you're looking at like teeth, uh, in certain circumstances, you can actually like find plant residues and things like that, that are, pe that people are eating. Um, and so it really, depending on like what context you're working in, it can really show you this dynamic relationship that people have with food. Um, when I was working on the Danish stuff, uh, a big part of it was grains. And that was super surprising to me because I thought that it was mostly just going to be like marine-based foods that they're eating. Um, but grain played a huge role in their economy and it was a huge like pride point for them at that point that they were able to um, build this giant economy off of, you know, rise and grains that were really hardy um, during a time of like crazy climatic change um it was kind of the beginning of like the little ice age and there was this like giant warming period before that and so to see how food played a role in this time where there was like so many different like climatic issues and diseases similar to today um you know that they that they had this identity around that and that was reflected in their bones as much as it was in their you know written records is is really beautiful to be able to kind of like look at that 
Definitely. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. Cool. Absolutely does. Um, and just to give like a very basic background um, for anyone who doesn't know, how do you look at um, food? I know you mentioned stable isotope. Yeah. Um, if you want to like just very briefly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so you can look at it. I mean, there are different types of isotopes that you can look at and you can get different things from that. Um, I looked at strontium, which is... Um, usually found in like bedrock um and so you can kind of tell where someone is from based on these these readings that you get from different bedrock areas um and you can also kind of tell using strontium what diets they were eating but basically it it limits it to are you eating marine foods or are you eating terrestrial foods and so the number kind of changes the strontium reading changes depending on what foods you're eating uh so you can kind of it's like a rough estimate always Mm -hmm. but it gives you a spectrum of of how much marine food that they're eating based on the number that you get out from that um and you can also look at it with carbon and nitrogen but i did not do that Um, but that tells you what different types of plants that um people are eating and whether or not they're having like um meat versus plant-based diets as well Mm -hmm. and you're looking at teeth yeah i forgot that key element (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah um so you're looking at uh pulling out from dentin because that for strontium dentin is something that like doesn't really um destruct as quickly as the rest of the bone and so it's not going to be like um contaminated when you're doing analysis so it actually gives you a really clear reading of of what that person's life was going to be um in a way that like other bones don't so that's why teeth are great for that yeah wonderful so we'd like to thank you very very much for teaching us everything you have today and for coming on the show that's much much appreciated um if you are interested in hearing more about Sarah, um, more about what she does, and she does some awesome interviews on her own podcast. So do you want to tell people a little bit about your podcast? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a podcast called Anthrodish, uh, and it looks at the connections that we have between food and identities and cultures. Um, but I try to do so in a way where you get academic perspectives, but you also get perspectives of folks that work in the food industry, um, indigenous food sovereignists. Uh, pretty much anyone that has a food story is always welcome to come on and share. So I like to keep it kind of like this publicly accessible conversation around food. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate oh, getting to talk you. to you. It was really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> kind of a different change from what we usually talk about. So it's really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, as a lot of you know, we always do our non-human listener of the week. So would you like to do our non-human listener of the week shout out? Sure. Okay. Uh, So I'd like to shout out Bruce, who is my friend Taylor's dog. He's very cute. So hello, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) So as always, if you're um, if you have any feedback or if you would like to hear us tackle a certain topic, uh, even if you think it doesn't relate to anthropology, I guarantee you there's an anthropological twist that can be put on it. (laughs) So you can always um, contact us through our Facebook or through our Instagram. Um, so thank you for another wonderful week. And uh, we'll we'll talk to you next week. It's a mystery what next week's uh, topic is going to be about. But uh, <laughs> we will let you know. And as always, you can listen to previous episodes on the CFMU website. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. And have an absolutely wonderful week. <laughs>